Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Hey guys, good morning. This is uh, probably my favorite time of year. Uh, it's kind of perfect. You don't have, to, don't have to shovel my driveway or mow my lawn, because uh, all the grass is dead and the snow's gone. Um, it's Lloyd, so the driveway thing might change in the next few months. We don't know. Um, if you know me, I don't actually usually shovel or mow, um, but this time of year is great because I'm not a complete disappointment to my wife when I'm not doing that. So I love, I love the weather we're having right now. wish my lawn could just stay dead for the next six months. So it's been an honor uh, getting to do uh, the Gospel of Mark with you guys and just work through it. What an awesome text. Uh, last week was great, Doug unpacking this kind of tricky, interesting passage about this Jesus and Syrophoenician lady. Lady, If you didn't catch it, um, you could uh, check it out online. Um, but it's just been neat digging in. And on a personal level, I've, just, I've, I've loved just slowly working through the Gospel of Mark. And I, I hope you guys are following along at home. I hope you're spending time uh, not just showing up to church, but spending time with the text at home and, and just saying, Jesus, speak to me, you know, change my life through what I read in the Gospel of Mark. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Mark 8, 11 to 30. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a device, feel free to pull it out if you'd like. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of an overview of this morning. Um, the, uh, it's going to be in four sections, and those are probably divided that way in your Bible anyways, because um, uh, some people who translated the Bible did that. Um, and uh, we're, the, the first and the third one are going to be kind of short. The second and the fourth one, we're going to see some uh, conversations Jesus has with his disciples. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time, especially on the second one, this conversation about yeast and stuff like that. We'll get there. Um, and uh, we're going to spend most of our time there and kind of have a bit of a bottom line takeaway idea from each of those. And um, one thing I'll say is that this text is kind of a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. After this... Um, some things that Jesus talks about kind of starts to shift and change, and we'll talk about that at the end of the service as well. Um, but uh, yeah, hopefully uh, as we work through uh, this text, God will continue to speak to you. But before we dive into the words of Jesus, why don't you pray with me? God, thank you so much that we have uh, you and that we have Scripture, and we have the opportunity to get together and read and study Scripture together. And uh, I pray that you would just open up our ears, open up our eyes, and help us see you, and help us hear you, and help us understand uh, who you are just a little bit better. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus has a lot of opposition in his ministry. People come up and argue with him, and this is how this opens in uh, Mark eight eleven. The Pharisees, we've met them before, came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said... Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. What an interesting request to ask Jesus for a sign. I mean, we know at this point, right, that he's like raised people from the dead, walked on water, fed thousands of people, just a little bit of food, 
done all kinds of miracles, healed people. We know that, right? So it's interesting. The Pharisees know that. So they're not just asking Jesus to heal someone or, you know, walk on water or do something like that. My best understanding, what they're probably asking for is some kind of apocalyptic vision. And, and so, I mean, if you want to understand that, like, I mean, read Revelation and, and that kind of a, a vision, or in the, in the book of Daniel, that kind of a vision. And I, I think they're saying, hey, Jesus, show, show us that you're actually, like, from heaven. These guys, 2,000 years ago, they're probably a little superstitious. They probably believe that it's actually possible for a man to conjure up the spirits of Satan or some kind of evil spirits or by some superstitious force to be able to do some miracles. And so they're asking Jesus for a different sign, something different than what he's done. In Jesus, I mean, we've, we've observed already in the text, and we continue to see that he's not really the type of person that's interested in saying, oh, sure, you're putting demands on me. Let me just meet those demands right quick. You know, he, he, he's just like, guys, like, why are you asking me to perform? For you? Why are you saying dance monkey dance to the creator of the universe? And it's easy for us to read this a couple thousand years later and be like, man, silly Pharisees, like Jesus did all these things. But how often in our lives are we those Pharisees, you know, where, where Jesus has given his life, he's come back from the dead, he's given us life, he's given us breath in our lungs, we have scripture, we have each other, we have so much, yet what do we often do? God, this is what I need to know. This is what I need to hear from you. This is what I need to see. Could you just do this? If you, if you made this make sense in my life, I could have more faith. It's, it's really no different. And so often, it's, it's easy to read about the Pharisees like they're morons <laughs> 2,000 years ago, but so often I read and I'm like, I'm the Pharisee. How often do I approach God like that? Continuing on, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And I just want to quickly say, this is the reason why Jesus in his 12 probably should have included some women, right? He's got like 12 dudes, he got one loaf of bread. Not to draw on like gender stereotypes, but like, I, I mean, Talcy went on mat leave a little over a year ago, and it made me realize just how useless I am. You know, I like, we both work at the same place, so I'd always eat lunch and stuff, but as a guy, or at least for me, I wake up in the morning, I eat food because I'm hungry, and then I'm full, so I'm not thinking about food. And all of a sudden, lunchtime rolls around, it's like, oh man, like I should have like packed a lunch or something. And uh, even after a bit, once I caught that, I'd like start packing lunch, I forget, I, I was useless without her. Anyways, I just picture these 13 dudes in a boat looking around, it's like, whoops, we should have packed some food. Anyways, one loaf. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. This verse is going to be uh, the verse we'll probably draw the most from. So hang on to that verse because it's going to disappear in a minute. But watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So the disciples, they discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? And uh, it, so I, this, this picture to me is just funny. These 13 guys on a boat, one level. It makes me think, I don't know if you've been part of a small group here at FBC and your snack schedule gets kind of messed up. You know, like whoever the snack coordinator is in your group, they kind of like sent mixed messages or the calendar got messed up and no one thought it was their night on, they thought it was someone else's night on, and, and like small group is ruined, right? Like, yeah, sure, we can study scripture, but there's no snack, you know? The best mistake is if everyone thinks it's their time on snack and then you're like, oh yeah, you know, we only had to do Bible study. We can just eat all night, right? Um, just kidding, don't do that. The celiac at your small group is like, guys, I would kill to eat that old crusty piece of bread, okay? So anyways, aware of their discussion... Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Why are you focused on this loaf? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts 
hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And we'll pause there. Uh, don't you remember? That's gonna, he's going to ask him about remembering something. But Jesus says to him, why are you talking about this? Jesus has just dropped a teaching. And then they start talking about something really just like physical and normal. Jesus drops his teaching. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they go to something just kind of really physical. And this is what we have to understand about Jesus. And Doug did a great job of highlighting this last week, that Jesus doesn't have some kind of like political agenda or mission. He doesn't have some kind of like socioeconomic. He's, our view of like a mission or an agenda isn't Jesus's. Jesus's mission is spiritual. When Jesus teaches, he's not wasting words. He's not, you know, talking about all these different things. He, Jesus has a spirit, this spiritual mission, this spiritual agenda, and this is what he's talking about. And, and he's frustrated with his disciples because he, he, he's saying something, and we'll unpack what it means in a minute. They should understand this teaching at least to some degree, and their minds immediately go to like, oh, man, it's because we didn't pack enough lunch, right? And, and Jesus is like saying... <laughs> Are your hearts that hard? Do you not understand? And he uses this language. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? If you've been here through the Mark series, this isn't the first time we've encountered this language. In fact, this is the fourth time that we've encountered this language coming from Jesus. Do you have ears but you don't hear? Do you have eyes but you don't see? This is the final time Jesus uh, uses that. And in fact, I'll quickly pause to say I'm on the internet, you can go out and find these things called like Bible codes, like this number word means this, and I, I'm, I'm against those, so please don't study scripture like that. And if, you, if, if you're wondering about that, we can talk about that and why I don't think that's helpful. But there are some really interesting themes that happen throughout scripture, and if you want, I don't know how you study scripture, but if you ever take some time, and the internet makes this really easy to just look at all the instances that the Gospel of Mark talks about hearing, or like ears and stuff like that, it, it's really fascinating because Mark draws this kind of like dichotomy, this, this um, parallel between physically hearing, like hearing sound, like sound waves are happening, and you're processing that, and hearing and understanding the gospel. Hearing with your ears and hearing with your heart. Where Jesus teaches and people actually have ears to hear and understand the gospel message and, and, and follow Jesus' teaching as a result of their hearing. And that's the type of hearing that Jesus is after. He says, when I teach, hear my spiritual mission come through. Don't, don't, don't worry about bread. This isn't this isn't, this isn't what I worry about. Remember this. Don't you remember? Jesus goes on. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? At this point, the disciples know they're in trouble, and I imagine them just being like, oh, 12, you know. <laughs> and, Jesus, and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they said, we get it, Jesus. We get it. And he's like, no, no, how many? And they're like, seven. How many? Seven. Seven, Jesus. He says, do you still not understand. Jesus is saying, food? I can make food. Give me a loaf. I'll feed all of us forever. It doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, don't, don't try to minimize my spiritual teaching to something that just makes sense in your context. Don't worry about the things of this world, because I'm giving you a spiritual truth that is more important than the very bread that you eat. Jesus challenges his disciples to understand the gospel. The gospel is the central message of Scripture and of everything we do here at FBC. We lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is only through the message of the gospel. And that only works when the gospel is intact. And Jesus gives this warning. He says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. 
And it's actually this neat theme that goes on through Scripture, this idea of yeast. And the disciples, I feel, should have been a little aware of this at this point. But I'll unpack this theme a little bit. And we'll hop into the Old Testament where, this, where it actually started. This yeast is a warning against evil and against false teachings. In Exodus 12, this is when this concept first comes in, and it's, it's when this festival, this feast called the Passover starts. So just to give a little bit of context to uh, kind of the Old Testament narrative, what happens through the book of Genesis is God's nation is formed, and then at the end of the book, uh, there's like famine, so they end up in Egypt, and they're getting food there, and so it's a good thing for them. They're in a good spot. You, you flip the page from Genesis 50 to Exodus 1, there's a new king, his name's Pharaoh, and he doesn't remember them, he doesn't care about them, and all he sees is this like large ethnic group in his country, and he's like, they might take over. So he starts freaking out. And what he decides to do is he decides to take action. He, he oppresses them, puts a heavy yoke of slavery on them, he starts putting them to work, forced labor, and then he actually goes crazy and he kills, he has all like the Hebrew boys age two and under killed, thrown into the Nile River. And the, I, I want to talk about something, for, something really fascinating that I find in this text, and this is maybe a little bit off topic, but this is just an interesting parallel of how I think God works. Because to me, the Exodus, when God is going to deliver uh, the Israelites from oppression in Egypt is, to me, one of my favorite expressions of what we call the gospel in the Old Testament. A lot of times we think, oh, the gospel started or happened when Jesus came and died, like it's on some timeline. But the gospel is, 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 this, is this framework of God's deliverance of his people, those who are faithful to him throughout scripture. So when we think about salvation, when we think about the gospel, the, the, the final fulfillment of that is that Jesus died on the cross to offer forgiveness for our sins. We were oppressed by an evil force called sin, and we couldn't deliver ourselves, so Jesus steps in and delivers us. This is the same thing that happens, just in a little different way, in the book of Exodus. What happens is the Israelites are enslaved by an oppressive force called the Egyptians, and they're in bondage. And God looks at that and says they can't help themselves, and he steps in and offers deliverance. And I love it. And here's what's interesting about Egypt. When God created Egypt, he created this, like, desert in the middle of the world that's, like, hot and dry. And now we have technology, but way back in the day... To live there would have been difficult because as humans, we need water. So God created this amazing gift smack dab in the middle of Egypt called the Nile River, this wellspring of life that people would drink from it, they could water their crops, that life would be sustained in this desert because God created the Nile River. This is an amazing gift. God is the God who provides. He always has been and always will be. And so, so here's this river. It's what people drink from. They use it for everything. And then this king, his name is Pharaoh. He doesn't actually have a, that's just his title. His name isn't even mentioned in scripture because he's not important enough. But uh, he, he, he decides, let's take all these Hebrew boys and throw them in the Nile River and turn the wellspring of life, the thing that God has given us for life, and turn it into death. I mean, what a perfect like allegory for sin that is in our lives. God gives us life, and we use that to choose sin and turn it into death. So he fills the Nile River with these uh, Hebrew boys. And I mean, it's brutal. I mean, if you're an Israelite, that's brutal. If you're an Egyptian, that's brutal too. You wake up in the morning, you're like, I'm going to go get a bucket of water, and there's just infant corpses floating by. This is, like, at, the, at some point, you're like, okay, dude, like, this is crazy, you know? Like, like what? 
a lot of you probably are familiar with what happens in the rest of the story, that God shows up and he, he we, we think about the gospels being this light, fluffy message. Maybe you've heard about the Exodus, like through the Prince of Egypt or some Sunday school story, some light, fluffy story. What happens is God comes with wrath and vengeance against evil. And that's how the God of the gospel acts, is that when there's evil, he acts in wrath and vengeance so as to free us from that and offer us deliverance and righteousness. So God shows up and, and he brings some intense uh, plagues against the Egyptians. Like, it's brutal. And, and it culminates as in one that we're going to talk about, but I want to just talk about something that I think is really interesting, and I love the way God expresses him through Scripture. Because remember, God created the Nile for life. Pharaoh filled it with death. He tried to turn this gift of life that God had given them into death. What's the first plague that God brings on Egypt? He turns the whole Nile into blood. And I picture God just saying, hey, Pharaoh, like, cute try, nice attempt. I will show you I am the God who can bring life and death. You think you can turn what I made for life into death? Let me show you that I am the one that has power to do that. And what an interesting picture for what's actually going to happen to Pharaoh and his army just a short while after that in a different body of water. Anyways, that's a fascinating text. I mean, man, we stop and talk about Exodus 1 and 2 for hours. Um, so anyways, what happens is that's this first plague, and it goes through this series of plagues, and God is just bringing the beat down on Egypt. <laughs> he's bringing these plagues, and he's saying, let my people go. Eventually, God says, I'm bringing death on the firstborn child of every family who does not participate in this um, celebration called the Passover. And part of it was that the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were supposed to make bread without yeast in it. So basically, their bread looked like pancakes instead of like a loaf, because that's what yeast... I don't know much about making food, but I've read, and yeast is like this little ingredient that you put in, and it turns the loaf into a loaf instead of just like a gross pancake. Um, and, and so what God says is, don't put any of that in. Sweep it out of your houses. Cleanse your house of the yeast. And from there on out, they celebrate that once a year. And yeast becomes this interesting image, this interesting metaphor for evil and for false teachings and for things that infect the gospel message. Throughout scripture, when you read yeast, I mean, sometimes it literally just means the ingredient, but a lot of times it means be aware of that which comes in and tries to take over and infect what's going on here. So Jesus, quite a while after that account, he says, be aware of the yeast of, the, of Herod and the, the Pharisees. In, in Matthew 16, he says uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees because he's writing to a more Jewish audience, but be aware of this. Be aware of how that will creep in, how the false teachings will come. Jesus has come to bring the message of the gospel, and he calls people to know and to live and to embrace that message fully. And he says, be aware of the yeast. It, it, again, it's so easy for us to read that and be like, well, why, were the, why, why could the disciples be so deceived? I mean, we're pretty smart. We've got it all together. And I think that that's probably not a very helpful way to look at the text because the disciples back then, they would be dealing with certain heresies like Gnosticism and Arianism and a bunch of other ones like that, the ones that a lot of you are like, what's that? Because we don't really talk, those aren't really heresies that exist in the church anymore. But false teaching is alive and well as much as it ever has been before. I mean, a consumeristic gospel is like rampant in North America. We actually just watched this interesting documentary on Wednesday, on Wednesday at Youth about this, where because of our consumerist, individualistic 
tendencies in North America, we take the gospel and we kind of add it to what we want. We develop our own theology or we buy into false teachings like, you know, kind of like a health and wealth gospel or a prosperity gospel that says if you just have enough faith, the gospel is all about you being healthy and happy and rich and and prosperous and all that. And and it is yeast. It is garbage that seeks to infect the gospel. And and, and yeast is a powerful force. I mean, it comes in and it, it, it it like dictates the shape of the entire loaf. It, it seems small in the outset to say, well, you know, whatever if I just believe this little thing or whatever if I just listen to this little thing or let my own ideas come in here, but it is a big deal. It shapes everything. This is my picture of, of yeast because I, I don't know much about food, but if I had a glass of uh, clean drinking water and I had a glass of Frank's Red hot sauce, if I took a teaspoon of the water and put it in the Frank's Red and, and you drank, it, it wouldn't really change much. If you take a teaspoon of the Frank's Red and you throw it in the water, that's gross. No one wants to drink that. That is, what, that is what the yeast of the Pharisees, that is what the yeast of prosperity preachers or, or, or our own desire-driven gospel brings in to the gospel. And we're easily deceived, and the reason we're easily deceived is because we're not aware of and we're not familiar with what the gospel's really all about. The best way to defend against the yeast isn't to like learn about all the heresies and false teachings in the world and be like, okay, I need to be careful of those. The best way is to just know what the gospel is really about. And I'm concerned that nowadays in 21st, North, 21st century North American church, we have this really watered down, like scattered idea of what's actually going on. And we have to know the real. Because what I would say is that if you know the real deal, you won't fall for a fake. If you know the real deal, you won't fall for a fake. Let me unpack that a little bit. I love pranks. I love pranks so much that if you do a prank to me, I'm just happy that a prank happened, and I think it's hilarious just because pranks are so good. So anyways, I would rather you come to me and we prank someone else, but if, if the only way you're going to do a prank is on me, great, love it. So uh, years ago, you guys know Neil, he sings up here a bunch. Uh, he joined Kairos, and he's on tour with us. And one of the nights on tour, uh, early on, he fell asleep, and um, he had his cell phone see me sound. It's just a flip phone. At, at this time, he had a girlfriend. He'd only been dating her for a little while. And uh, so he fell asleep, and I saw his cell phone there. And, you know, the nice thing about flip phones, pretty easy to hack, you know? You don't need a thumbprint or anything like that. So I opened his flip phone, and I decided to write a message to his girlfriend while he's asleep. And I just say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about it. Just don't think things are working out. So I think we need to take a break, send close the phone, put it back beside his sleeping body. Um, right now, 95% of you are like, oh my goodness, this is our pastor. The other 5% of you are like, oh my goodness, this is our pastor, right? So, <laughs> so Neil wakes up in the morning. He's slept all night, so this is sat for a while. He wakes up and he's like, oh my goodness, I have so many texts. My phone like blew up all night. So he starts reading through these essays of like, but Neil, I love you, whatever. Um, and... Um, and he's just like, oh my goodness. He's like, what happened? Who texted my girlfriend? I'm like, yep, me, right here. Um, and so he writes her and he's like, uh, yeah, sorry, like, we're still good. Um, and so anyways, about a week later, I like, saw his phone there again. He's sleeping. I'm like, this is, I just, like, this is too good. And so I had to think of something even more creative. But I told her again, hey, I, I don't think this is working. And so he woke up to a bunch of texts again. And then it kind of became a running joke uh, where... I would do that, and she's like, ah. Anyways, the, the ironic thing is when it came time for them to break up, he's like, well, I guess I can't break up with her through text, because uh, she just won't believe it. Uh, they had only been dating for a little while. Uh, Talcy and I, we've been married for a while. We've known each other for a long time, 
And when we were dating and engaged, and even part of our marriage, I, I was like on the road and she was here. So we spent a lot of our time text. We've texted a lot. And now, in fact, if we're in the same house, we just text each other instead of talk. It's way, way easier that way. You don't, then emotions don't come into play. So, um, just came. Um, but we spent a lot of time texting. About a month ago, someone picked up my phone and decided to prank text Talisee. Now, Talisee knows that a few things about me. One is that I'm, I, I, use correct, I use proper grammar and syntax and punctuation and capitalization. Even at the end of the text, you guys, periods belong at the end of the text. I realize it's easy to just hit send. Those belong there. Talcy knows that about me. We've texted a lot. She knows how I talk. She knows what I talk about. She knows the things I say. So someone tried to prank text her a month ago, and she looks at it, and immediately she's like, this, this, is, this isn't Ryan. You know, and, and people have tried to prank text her, and I think it's hilarious. I mean, I, I, I encourage you, uh, go grab my phone. I'll tell you the code. You can try, and uh, you, you just be meticulous with your grammar. But um, you can try. But she knows me, like through text even, really well. Really hard to trick her. I'm concerned that as Christians, we're often like, you know, the guy who's been dating the girl for a little while, Easy to deceive. You can send a prank text and a drop of a hat. It's like, oh, throw you for a loop. We have so many ideas that come from our own desires. We have so many, in your pocket, you've got a device that has access to millions and millions of false teachings and heresies and ideas in the world that just detract and undermine the message of the gospel. And those are yeasts that if you start to embrace those and you let those in, they will come in and they will take over the whole loaf. One of the reasons for this is because of our approach to Scripture. It's been said that our generation is the most biblically illiterate generation since the Reformation. Our generation, us, most biblically illiterate generation since the Reformation. Let me unpack that a little bit. If you don't know what the Reformation is, Google it. Really fascinating. A lot big impact on what we're doing now. Uh, pretty important, I'd say. Um, happened hundreds of years ago. Prior to the Reformation, they didn't really have the people didn't really have the Bible. So to say that we're the most biblically illiterate generation since the Reformation is to say we're the most biblically illiterate generation that actually like has access to this thing. And speaking of access, way more than anyone's ever had. I have more translations of Scripture on my phone than I will ever read in my life. We have so much access, yet we don't know it. Easy to deceive people who don't know much. I mean, Talcy and I never talk. If we take... If we just never talked through our whole marriage and relationship, it'd be easy to send her a text and pretend you're me. She wouldn't know my voice. We're unconcerned and apathetic about knowing the voice of God through Scripture. When we talk about thinking in, engaging personally with God, one of the primary ways is to know His voice, to read Scripture and to study it. Oh, but Ryan, I'm busy and I've got. I, quite honestly, whatever your excuse is for not engaging with Scripture, if you're following Jesus, I say this because I don't care. If it means you have to change something in your life to know God's voice, do it. Because your life without this will have yeast in it. And what you're doing just doesn't matter in comparison to this. I don't care what sport you have to quit. I don't care if you have to cut back hours on your job and live a little bit more of a meager lifestyle. I don't care if you have to give up some of your shows. I don't, I don't care if you say, hey, we need to take some family time and do scripture instead of... Uh, it, it's all worth it. 
We have to be people of the book. If we're the most biblically illiterate generation since the Reformation, what's going to happen to our kids? I mean, what will they believe? Anything. I mean, we have no idea. What are they going to know? And I mean, man, this, we're getting ready to celebrate Good Friday and Easter where Jesus drug a cross up a hill and his blood poured out. And that blood is the ink that writes these letters on the page. I mean, there's a big price that Jesus paid so that we could know him through Scripture. This, this gospel that we're reading, Mark, Mark was, he wrote this. I've said before, it's like contraband when he's writing it. It's believed that they tied a rope around his neck and just drug him through the streets until he was dead. Peter, who would have been his main source for writing this, crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was, was like it would be a dishonor to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. Man, we have to, ret- we have to be a people of the book. It's so easy to fall for a fake if you don't know the real deal. We have to return to this. We have to care about what Jesus has to say. We also have to, I, mean, I, just want to start, I just want to rant about that for a while. I, read scripture, please. They came to Bethsaida. This is a really interesting miracle account. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So these people bring this blind guy. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And stop, that's, really, that's pretty weird. Blind guy comes up to you, it's like, can you heal me? It's like, sure, let's go for a walk first, blind dude. I mean, weird approach. They leave the crowd. When he had spit on the man's eyes, also weird, and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Uh, I love the Lord of the Rings. And whenever I read this, I just think about, you know, the ants, like the tree monsters. Yeah. Okay. This guy's like living in Lord of the Rings. At that point, I'm like, oh, just leave me here. This is awesome. Um, But I see people. They look like trees walking around. They're blurry. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Well, what a weird miracle account. I, I mean, if I'm Jesus, this is how I do it. People bring a blind guy to me, and I'm in the village. I'm saying, y'all, come check this out. Gather around, let's get a crowd, maybe sell tickets, whatever, set up Jesus' merch table, and then boom, instant heal, 100% healed. But Jesus, he withdraws from the crowd, heals this guy halfway, then heals him completely, and then says, don't go tell anyone, just keep it a secret. This is a weird account. Um, and we could spend a while talking about that. Um, if you, there, there are ideas about why Jesus only healed this guy halfway like this and why Jesus is kind of keeping stuff a secret at this point. If you use a study Bible, here, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say something like... Uh, a little, I don't say disparaging, a caution about that, but also an encouragement in that regard. If you have a study Bible, the commentary at the bottom probably gives you a reason why Jesus healed him halfway. And maybe that reason's right. I don't know. Um, if you don't have a study Bible, you don't know what that is. It's a Bible where there's scripture up here and down here. Some smart guy that lives in like UK or Grand Rapids, Michigan or something, writes like some ideas about what, really helpful. If you've never used a study Bible and you're starting to engage with scripture, please get a study Bible. If you know what that looks like or where to find them, um, come talk to one of us. We'd help you figure it out. They're kind of expensive. So if you're like, I can't afford one, we'll, we'll figure that out with you as well. I really encourage the use of a study Bible, especially when you're starting out studying scripture. But I'll also say this. I think a lot of, we come out of a generation where we want there to kind of be a neat, tidy, answer for every question. If there's a question, there's an answer. We want our theology to be like, well, why did Jesus do this? Well, because of this. Like, case closed. 
I think it's really cool that Jesus is a little bit mysterious. I think it's pretty neat that Jesus does things differently than we would, and it's hard for us to understand that. I like a God where it's just like, man, I don't totally quite get him, and I'm going to have some interesting questions for him one day when I meet him. So I'm not going to comment on which versions of the answer of why Jesus healed this guy halfway I believe in or don't or whatever. Um, What I want to say is, what I've been reflecting on this week is, I've been asking myself, why did Mark put this account right here in this narrative? Why did it come right after this? And it's interesting to me because Jesus has just warned against the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod, evil king, false teachers, don't let their evil teachings infect your understanding of the gospel. Jesus has just said, watch out for this yeast, have ears to hear and eyes to see. I think it's really easy for us to be like the half-blind guy. Like, I wonder how many of us, you know, we have that experience at Bible camp when we're young, or maybe at church on a Sunday, or, you know, you went to a small group, and you're like, yes, I want to believe in Jesus. And then you just kind of leave it there, and that's like a past event. And you just continue on. And you let Jesus touch your eyes once, and your understanding of the gospel you can see some stuff, but it's blurry. A lot of times we talk about the gospel and people think that the gospel is for people who don't know Jesus. The gospel is for people who know Jesus. It's what we live on. It's what transforms us every day. It's how Jesus continues to touch our eyes and open our eyes to the truth rather than us walking around with blurry vision. I think it's more comfortable to have blurry vision. I mean, for, the, for this guy that got healed, it'd be pretty easy to choose who you get married to because they all look the same, so it doesn't matter. But, um, you know, is she nice? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, but theologically and spiritually, I think it's easy because it's just like, well, if I just understand a bit about Jesus, that's more. the, the gospel is a challenging message. And Jesus wants to continue to touch your eyes and open your eyes and reveal truth to you. If your spiritual journey is a, is a narrative of the past and has little narrative in the present, then I would challenge you to ask yourself whether or not you're this half-blind guy. Is it, well, I accepted Jesus when I was at Bible camp, and I used to serve when I was younger, and I did, you know, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. It's all these past accounts, but right now you're not thriving. We we talk about leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. What are you continuing to understand about Scripture and about the gospel, and how are you continuing to take risks and steps for Jesus and devote your life to him and pour out your life to him and surrender to him as king? Don't be a half-blind guy. I don't know if that's why Peter put it there. That's my idea. Um, I'll ask him one day. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them, not to tell anyone about him. Again, this messianic secret, don't tell anyone. Your study Bibles will say, well, it's because of political reasons or the disciples aren't ready. I don't know why it is. It's really, I'll ask Jesus one day. I'm going to have a lot of questions for Jesus one day about a a lot of things, you know, like about scripture, but also like why is taking in calories so much easier than burning them off? Why couldn't that equation be a little different, Jesus? Jesus especially as I'm getting older, would have appreciated if you could like hook us up a bit there. Why do babies' fingernails grow so quickly? They don't need them for anything. They just hurt us, you know? Lots of questions for Jesus. This is the deep theological truth we're pulling out. Okay, while we're there, well, 
Okay, we'll get distracted for a second. While we're there, I want to tell you something that has fascinated me about God this past week. For the last couple of weeks, my baby Avra has been having a runny nose, okay? And like, and nonstop. Like there are times when she like, it runs, but like it's crazy. And it's just, you guys know, it's just that thick stream that eventually hits the mouth and it's just like gooey, you know? And, and she's also learning how to kiss at the same time, which is like really bad combo, you know? Because we're ingesting a lot of her snot and stuff. So it's not good. So we've, we've gone through, if you want Kleenex, there's none left at Superstore because we've used it. We've uh, removed snot worth her body weight times 10. I was looking at her this week, and I was like, why does this happen to her? And I was like, it's because she doesn't know how to sniffle. If she could just know how to sniffle, then it wouldn't be so bad. And I'm trying to tell her, I'm like, Avra, just like quickly expand your lungs with your mouth closed. You know, just, and you know, it won't be so bad. But she just looks at me and goes, da And so um, I, she doesn't get it. <laughs> Anyways, wow, this is like so off topic. I hope you're taking notes. But um, what it like, I, I just marvel at how God's created us with all these little things that we can do. And I have all these questions about, yeah, it's, it's an amazing mystery how he's created us. And it's incredible. So Jesus, he says, who do people say I am? And they say, well, maybe one of these like dead guys. Well, Elijah technically wasn't dead, but one of these guys, maybe they've come back to life. That'd be pretty amazing. These are like remarkable teachers, heroes of the Jewish faith. That would be pretty cool. If Jesus was that, I mean, he'd have a lot of sway. He'd have a lot of power. He'd have some good things to say, and people could learn from them and listen to them, and that'd be interesting. But there's something more going on here, and Peter says, you are the Messiah. His, his proclamation here is he's saying, you're God. You're the one who you spoke and the creation leapt into existence. You made everything. You, you are the one that designed me. You're the, you are the center, the core of the gospel. You're the one who we left our lives for and will continue to leave our lives for. You're the one that we will follow no matter where you go. This statement that Peter makes is not only theological, but it's also deeply anthropological. And this is what I mean. He says that Jesus is the Messiah. That not only makes a statement about who Jesus is, but that says a lot about who Peter views himself as. And who we believe Jesus as ultimately shapes who we believe we are. And this is what I'll say about this. When you truly define Jesus, you truly find yourself. If you want to know who you are, if you want to really understand who you were created to be and find your identity, it starts with just a proper and true recognition of who Jesus is. Because Peter here says, you're the creator, you're king, you're master. Because if Jesus is the creator, that means that I'm the creation. If Jesus is the master, I'm the servant. If he's the king, I'm the subject. No questions about that. It's a, it's a thing of complete surrender and recognizing who he is and in response, who I am. We, we serve a God who loves us so much and is so perfect and righteous that when, when we're caught in slavery in Egypt, he will come and enact justice and liberate us if we'll just turn to him and cry out for help. We, we serve a God who will come in bodily form and give his life for us. This is the turn, the twist that happens after this text in Scripture. In Mark, now Jesus starts talking about how he's going to die. He's like tweeting all this stuff about, you know, I'm going to like die on a cross and stuff like that. And people are saying, whoa, Jesus, this is crazy. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to surrender everything. That is the king, that is the God that we follow. We wrote to sing this song. I love it. It's called So Will I. And it talks about if God created 
the world, the heavens and the earth, to sing his praise, like Psalm 19 says, to pour forth praises of the work of his hands, then so will I. If Jesus chose surrender, then so will I. Jesus, it, it talks, I love this picture. It talks about Jesus having created this hill that he drug a cross up to, and he created the hill that he died on. He created the people that nailed him to that cross. This is the God, the King that we serve. And when we understand that well, then we can understand who we are in relationship to that. We don't make the rules. We don't get to, it's not, the gospel isn't Jesus plus my own ideas. It's simply the truth of who Jesus is. And we need to be people who fall in love with that message of the gospel, who, who listen to his voice and who understand who he is so that we can truly understand in response who we are and how to follow him. Let's pray together. God, you are so perfectly righteous and holy. You're the king above all kings, the name above all names. You're unendingly perfect. Yet you came and gave everything for us so that the beauty and the depth of the gospel could come and liberate us and set us free and offer us eternal hope in you. God, please help us be a church that knows the real message of the gospel, that truly identifies you so we can understand the gospel and not only live it ourselves, but think out and take that to the world around us, God. Please continue to shape us as we pursue you. We love you so much, God. Amen.